1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Kat Youngnickel, and you're listening to the Wheel Suckers podcast.
2: Today, we're talking to Kat Youngnickel about... Publishing, Pockets, and Penny Farthings. Her new book, Bikes and Bloomers, has just come out about Victorian women who invented fancy cycle clothing to get around social norms of how women are supposed to be dressed. The Wheel Suckers podcast is forged in the studios of Warder in the phantasmical Fitzrovia, London. Warder Studios love recording podcasts. We do a podcast. Why don't you? Stop talking about it and start doing it. This episode is sponsored by Casket Magazine, the world's best cycling magazine, website, and online community. Casket captures the philosophy, freedom, humor, grit, and greatness of cycling at all levels. Go to casket.co.uk to get your dose now.
3: Hi, I'm your captain, Alex. I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mom No Hands, a cycle cafe bar workshop on 49 Old Street, London. We serve coffee, bikes, beer, food, and I'm joined by my stoker.
2: I'm Jenny Gwzdowski. I'm the director of the London Bike Kitchen. We are a do-it-together bike workshop in Hackney. We teach people how to fix their own bikes through classes, drop-in sessions, and our women and gender variant wag nights.
3: We have a special guest with us today. Woo. Woo! We can't say your surname, but we'll say your first name. I can say it. Can you? Yeah. It's Kat Youngnickel. Yay! Youngnickel. I keep wanting to say
1: Nickel. It can be said in many ways. Yay!
3: <laughs> <laughs> We're all right. Uh, hi, Kat. Um, can you give us an overview of what you do? Because I think we've listed... We tried to list all the wonderful things, which was teach... Uh, do research, write books, ride bikes, cycle, sew, <laughs>
1: swim. I think I think you've just wrapped it up. Is that it? Great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is <laughs> there any other
3: secret thing you do we don't know about?
1: Uh, I do like alliteration, so I do I do cycling, swimming, sewing, and sociology. So I think of myself as a cycling, sewing sociologist, which makes me very happy. That
2: is amazing. <laughs> is that in your your description, PhD?
1: Yeah it, uh, yeah. yeah, it almost is now. I think it's quite descriptive. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to do a research project about swimming at the moment. Just trying not to. I think that to. might be a bit too much.
3: <laughs> so we have you on today to talk about your book. Yes, you have. Bikes and Bloomers. Oh, I can't remember the tagline after that.
1: Uh, Bikes and Bloomers, Victorian Women Inventors and Their Extraordinary cycleware and extraordinary it was it
3: was so we did the launch Look from Your Hands that was quite
1: a long time ago now I know I know <laughs> but it's very memorable
3: it was really good uh, I remember you jumping up and ex- like demonstrating one of the costumes that was so good
1: well they're convertible costumes so yeah. they had to be demonstrated
3: <laughs> they have to be so could you just tell us a bit more about the book
1: yeah Um, it's a a book about, um, Victorian women inventors in late 19th century Britain. So it's pretty much about what women wore when they first started to ride their bikes, enthusiastically took to cycling in the, um, in the popular boom of cycling in the 1890s and how some pioneering women, um, uh, invented radical new forms of cycle wear in response to restrictions to their freedom of movement because nothing was going to stop them from cycling. Yeah. And this is part of the rational dress
0: movement.
1: Well, it was certainly, there was so much happening in the late um, 19th century. That was certainly one thing. There was a lot of discussion around um, clothing that was both limiting to women's um, kind of freedom, you know, physical and kind of political and social freedoms, and also about just their inability to you know, engage in the kind of social worlds that they were imagining at that time. So the rational dress movement had been around for a long time. Women had been advocating, and men as well, advocating for what they called a rational dress over irrational fashion. And it was for men and women, but they had a harder job with women's clothes because there was so much of it. You know? Middle and upper class women were wearing up to um, seven pounds of heavy lead petticoats, floor-length um, uh, A-line skirts, um, tightly-laced Um, uh, corsets, um, tailored blouses, jackets, gloves, veils, hats and more so it really didn't, it wasn't conducive to moving much um, and so rational dress, obviously, you know, they were advocating for clothing that was much lighter, um, looser and uh, less of it, basically. So for – and cycling really kind of pushed it further, kind of put it into the public domain. And rational dress kind of made much more sense on on a moving piece of machinery, whereby you can imagine all that other material made it very difficult. But wearing rational dress on a bicycle, even if it was safer and more comfortable, exposed the wearers to sometimes um, – verbal and even physical abuse because they were seen to kind of represent this new progressive woman that was potentially, you know, threatening and undermining the very fabric of society because she was seen as rejecting her wifely and daughterly duties at home and kind of pretending to um, a, a new kind of unknown future of women's independence and freedoms. Wow. Oh.
3: There's a really good wow. comic. I think, have you seen it? Harker Vibe. Great. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You love it. It's really it. good. I'll a link Step aside, there. pops. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I do think it must be wild how hard it must have been.
2: And yeah. even, even the, because I got to try on mm. one of the outfits at the launch and that was so hot. Mm. Like the tweed garments and, it, there's still a lot of clothing to wear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a hot night as well. Yeah, I think that was help. the beginning of this amazing summer that we're having. And I did feel for all of you um, enthusiastically, which I loved, wearing that many layers of clothing. And that were the summer versions as well. You know, I deliberately made light wool versions of these garments. But yeah, as contemporary cyclists, I think they do look really clunky, you know, and heavy. But when you compare it to what women were wearing, um, they were quite, you know, they were kind of, revolutionary and exciting, but the convertible garments weren't as kind of extreme as the rational garments, of course. They were still trying to look like um, conventional, ordinary women's dress that then converted into cycle wear. So they worked as two things. So they still had a lot more material than a lot of the rational dress, but they enabled the wearer to secretly switch right between modal identities. So um, you were wearing still uh, you know, skirts that changed as well as kind of bloomers and things underneath them.
3: It's so cool. I wish we had that today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's how I kind of got into it, is the fact that, you know, as contemporary cyclists, we're still dealing with so many of the kind of issues that these women were dealing with 130 years ago. So uh, women are still disproportionately harassed in public space for what they wear. Well, people are, but particularly women are. You know, There's still kind of um, conditions and and, uh, questions that are posed to women in public space at different times and how they feel as a result of that. And um, as cyclists, generally, we're still looking for clothing that works well on the bike and when you're off the bike. So, you know, a lot of these things were these challenges that these inventive women were attempting to address, you know, 100 plus years ago. And
3: so with the book, you highlight, And um, how many women do you focus on in the book?
1: Six. I only focused on six, but there are a lot more. Yeah, and six of them, there's actually five inventions, but one was by two sisters in um, York. So six of them.
3: And so you highlight these women in the book, but also for each... Outfit. You found the patterns, and then you made all the patterns.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I kept on tripping over that. So the the pa- patents, pa- patents. I never know how you I say know. it. I say, on I, which I say both usually. Say patent, I say patent. I say pattern. Yeah, but then there's patterns. You know, so I I made patterns the patterns from the yeah. patents. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we—I stumbled over the patents and got very excited by them as kind of these amazing um, piece of evidence of women's inventiveness in the 1890s. So, and the patents um, really. You know, give us this great piece of evidence of, of women's voices. You know, we hear from women that you otherwise wouldn't have heard from at the time about what they were doing or what kind of jobs, if they say what they're doing, where they're living, what they're what they're thinking about, the problems they were addressing, who um, they were inventing for, the kind of materials to use. They tell us so much. So I found them just great research objects because they give us a glimpse into the socio-cultural context of the time. But they also provide, of course, you know, detailed instructions for future users to replicate the idea. That's the whole point of a patent. But I tried to find them. You know, I had these patents and thought, well, I've got evidence of these things being made. Not all were just left in the, in the, uh, you know, the patent library. But I couldn't find any, right? I could not. I went through lots of museums, collections and galleries and couldn't find any material Garments left from that time.
3: Like the actual physical objects. So you just had all the kind of
1: blueprints almost. Exactly. Time capsule. Exactly. Like instructables, classic yeah. kind of hacking instructables. So I thought, I can make these or at least like, give it yeah, a shot. They left a printed how to. How to. Yeah, like gold. Oh, I can do something with this.
3: So then you went and made. Each garment. Yes. I mean, how, I mean, I can't even imagine. That must have been quite difficult. It was difficult. Yes.
1: (laughs) A little bit, I imagine. Yeah. (laughs) And we made so many versions of them. Like you start drawing them. I mean, they provided drawings, but you would then try and work out step by step by step what they're pointing to. And then you would make small iterations, material, tiny little iterations of it to see how it would all work. And then we would make a, a full size iteration of it in kind of a, a similar weighted wool that our final one would be in and then we do the final one because we were using um dashing tweeds which is a beautiful beautiful weave um but we didn't want to start with that and we wanted to start with no, kind of different wool. no exactly oh. but you know some of them were kind of tricky you know when you've got to sew a, a pulley system into a skirt for instance I hadn't done that before at this point so working out just how These networks of um, stitched channels in the front and the back, you know, wax cords that threaded through concealed buttonholes and weights in the hem, like incredibly clever. So what I learnt from doing it is just the complexity that was hidden out of sight in the infrastructure of the dresses. Like these women put a lot of effort into these technologies concealed inside their dresses that they would work efficiently, effectively and quickly but not be seen. So I can't. When you read that, it's very different to when you make it, and then you put it on, and you see it actually working. So I felt I got a lot closer to these women through their inventions because I could imagine um, them doing some of this prototyping. You know, trying to make it work, as we were making these maybe mistakes. even in the same way that you were doing. Maybe yeah. like yeah, you prototyping, went the right? same
3: process as them. That's trying kind to of make really, it work. Yeah, yeah, kind of magical. Yeah, like stitching a swan. You know, it's like swimming really hard underneath, but on the outside, and really smooth. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, so I feel like the event. Yeah, and the one you wore, Jenny, was kind of a button based. Yeah, you could take things off and add things. And
2: yeah, that's right. You, you uh... could button them up, the skirt up, or release it.
1: Yeah, it and had, and had it covered um, up the and... shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it rumors. had the loops underneath the hem, didn't it? Yeah, There, that was the Frances Henrietta Muller. You were in the three-piece. She was amazing. She was an emancipist, uh, a women's rights activist from uh, Maidenhead, but educated in Girton. You know, she really did remarkable things in the 1890s. But that garment, she clearly thought you couldn't dismantle the patriarchy with one skirt. So she had three pieces, a jacket, an all-in-one bloomer, and the convertible skirt, which is what you are wearing. Were they all um, British? Um, she was born in Chile and travelled an awful lot, spoke six languages or more. But yes, they're all, as far as I could tell, British, even though in the book, what I really tried to do, I couldn't work, I couldn't find the same information about all of the women. And I really deliberately tried not to produce kind of perfect narrations that smooth over the gaps because one of the challenges of trying to do research of um, uh, women from that period or any kind of historical period, to be honest, unless they're incredibly rich or notorious or uh, you know, there's only a kind of exceptional women who tend to have a lot written about them, not the kind of ordinary women, it's very difficult to find a lot. So I did a lot of research piecing together lots of genealogical stuff. The patterns clearly provide a lot more insights, but some of them, uh, Muller, I found a lot more because she was such an activist, but some of them, like uh, Madame Julia Gill, I could find nothing because there are so many Julia Gills uh, in the genealogical records. I kind of guessed that she might be one of two and speculated a little bit about that, but then did a lot more research into court dressmakers and how what they were doing to contribute to women's lives lives and imaginaries of what they could wear in public space or and what she might have been doing to make these costumes for women to carve out different ways of moving in public space. So I kind of I move around, you know, if I can get close to the women I did, but sometimes I had to move around, you know, what, what their lives were like.
2: How long did it take you to Years?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh
2: my
3: I think god. I yes. first started it, look,
2: Mum, you did a yes. Bikes and Bloomers yes. event. Yeah. And that was
3: four years ago. Yeah. I remember that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, the and that was one. the first time
3: seeing that this concept and this kind of pulley system, you know, and it was like, what the hell? it was do you think why? Why would you have to do that? Mm. You know, that's what was kind of amazing. Ankles were not cool. Can't show Independently
1: moving legs were not cool. (laughs)
3: Holy hell.
1: Yeah, right. So yeah, so those um those women did and and so many others, right? I think there's so many stories of women doing radical, activist, inventive, creative, brave things at the time, and this is just one story, and we, we didn't know about this, right? I didn't know about this, which is why I've been spending so much time on it. But it's one part of a huge collection of, of stories that must be out there that we still don't know about of these women who just challenged, you know, the, the way things were, were unhappy with them and just went about trying to fix stuff. And we now live in a world that comes a lot from these incredible things that these women in the past did for us.
3: What similarities have you found with those designs from back then to anything in cycle wear today?
1: I think the challenges in trying to ride a bike comfortably and safely and um, still be appropriately dressed when you arrive at your destination, I think those challenges are still quite significant for contemporary cyclists.
2: Sorry, I just realised my little cycling onesie that I have is a convertible garment. Oh, so what that is
1: this? It's, it's a
2: sense-common rain jacket and raincoat the really really long black one it just looks like this kind of matrixy waterproof jacket coat it's quite long goes to the middle of my calf but when it rains it's got little snaps in between the legs and it turns it into this little onesie and so my thighs stay dry yeah because otherwise it opens out doesn't it if you don't
1: pop it together yeah that sounds pretty amazing and there were definitely patents at the time for very similar things to that yeah, I write about one of them, but there were certainly more that were about that thing where the skirt turns into effectively clots by opening up and being pinned in some way.
3: I think there's a lot of people today that do the old the change thing. You know, they wear one thing to mm. ride and then they get changed. I tend to always just wear the same thing. Same. I just wear dresses actually. What do yeah. you? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, wearing I'm, wearing I'm wearing a long dress skirt today because yeah. it's so I've hot. I've had a few old men like, "Are you wearing a dress?" And I'll be like. <laughs> Yes, and then they they see me and they don't really
1: know what to say. That sounds like that cartoon, right? They see yeah, me rolling. They see me rolling.
3: They're a bit confused. Shut up, pops.
1: Yeah. What do you wear when you cycle? I don't often wear a dress um, because my commute's about forty minutes. And um, I find I just end up wearing jeans or trousers, to be honest, and usually dark colours just because maybe that's indicative of how clean my bikes are generally and I don't like to get changed how, also when I turn up. How dirty London is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, I, I'm really, in awe of people who wear white generally in London because that's never going to be me. But yeah, I generally wear T-shirts and trousers unless I'm doing touring or racing or long rides and then it's more appropriate cycle wear.
3: Uh-huh. I wanted to do a bit about the pockets, actually, oh, only because okay. I think maybe for those who don't know, and I think I heard it from you before, it was, it was a about what, talk. Po- Yeah, pockets and how political pockets are. And mm. ever since that thing popped in my head, you start to realise it.
1: Yeah, the politics of pockets, the gendered politics of pockets. Mm-hmm. Again, that's something that you can directly link also. Well, for centuries, women have been... You know, trying to deal with the lack of pockets and doing it really creatively. So whether that's been, you know, a few centuries ago, you know, um, making tie-on pockets that they wear underneath um, their skirts or petticoats or in the case particularly around um, the inventions of, you know, more radical forms of cycle wear, they were sewing pockets in and talking specifically about how important they were for new, newly mobile women to have their hands free and still be able to carry things. The garment that you were wearing, Jenny, that Henrietta Muller won, she talks at length about pockets in that and says that, um, you know, independent... Mobile Women should have, I think it was, should have at least five. but recommends up to nine pockets and to add more if you really want them. And they're all different types, right? Pockets for your watch and pockets for, I guess, tickets and pockets for money. All sorts of different pockets. Precursor Um, to like cargo shorts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All the cycling jersey with the pockets in it, I guess. And yeah, pockets are amazing. And we're still challenged in terms of women's clothing to have appropriate pockets. So I've been running some pocket-making workshops at festivals where people can either, you know, intervene in their clothing right then by sewing a pocket on it, you know, or make, you know, tie-on pockets to kind of carry around.
3: They're really cute. I love them.
2: Can you go back a bit and explain why, though? Why didn't women have – why weren't they allowed to have pockets in their clothes?
1: Well, I think there's a whole range of things. You know, women's um, clothing – I think men's clothing pockets were kind of seen as, as part of kind of the style and design for them to display property and goods. You know, they were kind of objects of kind of power and property and this was at a time when women were more often considered property than having property of their own. So they would have pockets that weren't necessarily... And they didn't fit with their clothing too. You know, clothing, women had these long skirts that didn't necessarily have pockets on them and so they would have their own pockets tied underneath their clothing. And then there's a longer story, which I'm not great at telling, (laughs) about (laughs) how it extends into the next century, about women's clothing kind of having these smoother lines that pockets don't fit very well, whereas men's clothing were larger and therefore pockets were apparently, with with objects in them, were still concealed.
2: I don't know, I think that's still interesting. (laughs) It's still really, really interesting. Because guys guys who buy women's jeans, Mm. like the really skinny ones, would always complain that they're like, hang on, there's no pocket here. Yeah. Like basically it's just a, like an image. Just an afterthought. And I yeah. always get excited when I find like a vintage dress or something that's got pockets in it. And I'm like, yeah, I can put my hands somewhere. Like <laughs> It's yeah, it's
3: not even that. It's, I can put my stuff in here. Because <laughs> I own stuff. Yeah. That's what kind of blew my mind.
1: There's a great story by a Utopian Feminist. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, she was writing at the turn of last century, some amazing, you know, just utopian future, science, you know, I guess science fiction futures about women having women having different futures, and um, she does this great one called "If I Were a Man," and this protagonist um, wakes up one morning in her husband's body, and goes to work as him, and just writes about how it is, and she talks about how her how her body fits with the urban environment so differently, like her feet.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Are in shoes that are comfortable and actually touch the earth as opposed to any parts of her feet in, you know, different modeling shoes and how um, she's able to run and grab hold of things because things were in pockets. And then she puts her hands in the pockets and she feels the kind of objects that are in there. And they symbolise kind of all the different responsibilities and possibilities that her her husband's life had in it, but hers didn't. And she talks, and there's this great quote where she talks about how she knew the pockets were in there. You know, she'd cleaned them and she'd mended them and, you know, she was aware of them. But then it felt very differently when she had them on her body and what that meant for her independence and freedom and, I guess, Political opportunities. It's its an amazing thing and it's written in like 1910.
3: If anybody wants to make a pocket, have you got any of your patterns online?
1: Well, I've got, uh, not for pockets especially, but the VA has got an amazing um, curation by Barbara Berman where she actually looks across all the pockets in the collection and writes about them. And that's a great resource. And she's got patterns up there for making different kinds of pockets. Um, but on my website, the Bikes and Believers website, I have all the patterns inspired by the patents um, that people can download and then interpret. So it kind of links back to your question of, you know, how are these kind of relevant to today? They've been downloaded over 2,500 times now, oh my
0: God. the wow. patterns.
1: Um, so they download for free, they're open access, and I'm so curious as to what people do with them because some of them um, – are really i think very usable for today or you know you can remix or remake or reinterpret them differently because we're not saying we've done the exact perfect replicas because we were trying to work things out and maybe other people will interpret these slightly differently so i'm just very curious as to what people then do with them and mm. how they might wear these 100 you know 30 year old costumes today on their bikes
2: that should yeah. be the the form of payment is just a photo. Oh yeah, of exactly. What, if you do anything, they do, yeah, yeah, even if you don't
3: finish, I think yeah. Yeah. it's still important to see maybe where someone got up to or yeah, yeah. what
1: hurdles they had yeah. or or if they have any troubles, get in contact because chances are I probably also had those troubles. I do yeah. on the patents point to um, the website and just say we we may have already you know struck that problem and had to work around it. So have a look to see what we were doing because we documented a lot of the process. But yeah it would be I I can't wait to see what people have done
3: I would love to have a crack but I know it would just destroy me <laughs> They were so I they like, were tricky. Yeah, I like sewing, but yeah, I it looks like next level stuff. Well
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes and no. Some of them are kind of simple, but some of them are a bit more complicated. But we had put minimal instructions and obviously we have the patterns there and they're based on A line skirts or bloomers. The bloomers are awesome, by the way. Those can definitely be, I think, adapted and worn, you know, and and I have I have worn quite a few of the bloomers in everyday life casually, as opposed to them just being for a dress up or for the project.
3: What's the, like, bloomers' tag? I guess we were talking about you were making outfits that convert. The bloomers just something women wore under their skirts or?
1: I think they did both, right? And there were all different types of bloomers and they were also called knickerbockers as well. There were kind of more narrow, you know, more lighter, maybe a silkier version or light wool that they would have worn underneath the skirt because you can imagine those layers, you know, you felt that personally. <laughs> so you they didn't want them to be too bulky but they replaced their layers of petticoats. So it was still a layer. And then you got kind of the larger, more tulip-shaped, the really big bloomer that actually when you've got when you're standing with your legs kind of close together it looks like it resembles a skirt so it kind of conceals the bifurcated na- nature of the skirt so it gives you freedom to move your legs independently but doesn't give away too much the shape the shapeliness of your thighs so um it doesn't look like you're wearing exactly so i've got two bloomer patterns the full ones and also the um more tapered tailored ones up on the website
3: and you've done bloomer workshops for that as well. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. They were great fun. People have made all sorts of types of bloomers and made them in so many kind of amazing fabrics. People have done them in you know, silks and cottons as well as kind of wool and they all take on very different personas and shapes. And I love that. I mean, the whole point of doing that was just to see not only how other people would interpret these patterns and to bring all of this kind of unique customization to it, but just the conversations that get generated when you get a group of people sewing together. It must be like when people are building bikes, right, you know, making things together. It generates, you know, different kinds of, I guess, Collegiality between people and it generates when your hands are doing something. I heard some amazing stories from people about, you know, what they wear to cycle through to what, who taught them to sew to, you know, how they feel, what's happened to them on bicycles, you know, how people have treated them. You, it's, was, a, it, they've been really. Important events, really.
3: I used to run a craft club and I know exactly what you mean. And I feel I haven't done enough of it in London. But when you go to like a, an event where you can be doing something with your hands, if you're a little bit nervous, you don't have to worry so much about talking to everybody because mm-hmm. you can focus in on that. Yeah, weirdly, if you go to look on my hands, there's all those like little knitted jerseys hanging. I love them. The yes, yeah, And I had to like wire each one up and string them up. And it was when we had the event with Laura Scott talking about Transatlantic Way. I ended up sitting on a table with a load of people I didn't know. Because I was just making this thing and then he ended up just chatting to everybody, and it was such a good way of like mm. talking to people because you seem like you're doing something, but then you're not too imposing. A bit like with the whole knitting thing. Yeah, it's still bitch. as bitch as it uh, I don't know if it was still as big as it was, but people used, used to, to be um, knitting yeah. on the underground and people used to just knit in public spaces, and it's quite a nice way of connecting and talking to people. Yeah. Are you doing any more workshops? <laughs>
1: Oh look, I constantly want to do sewing workshops. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, probably. You just need
2: portable sewing machines. Yeah, well, you convert your bicycle into a sewing machine.
1: Ah, oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> do I need that kind of encouragement? Actually, a I-
2: cargo bike, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, it's like those knife sharpeners, the dudes uh, that ride
1: around and sharpen people's know, knives. Like... We're just bringing all my loves together so closely, right? <laughs> Actually, the only times I've even ever been hospitalized has been for sewing and for cycling. So I was a little bit fearful doing this project. <laughs> swimming, like, oh my coming God. up. <laughs> yeah, no I, no, I haven't been hospitalized. So swimming. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Can you tell us about your penny farthing?
1: Penny farthings.
3: Oh, the oh, than more than one.
1: Oh, my gosh. I've got two now. Yeah. How did they come into your possession? Oh, I love them. I've got a racing penny and I have a, an 1889 Humber & Co. original penny now. Wow, um, an original. Mm, she's so pretty.
3: What's the difference between that and the racing? So the racing is
1: a, a replica. It was made about 2002, I think, by Mike Sullivan in Tasmania. So the Sullivans have been running the penny racing in Australia for, what, over 35 years now? And so they know a good racing penny. And so he he builds them very close to 1885 racing penny specs, but they're made with lighter materials. So it means I can pick it up and drag it and, you know, fly across hemispheres with it and... um, and also, you know, corner on it a little bit easier than you would on something which is 130 years old. And not only kind of more phys- physically easier, but clearly kind of emotionally easier. You know, I, I would struggle to, uh, you know, be worried about hurting such a vintage machine. And I, clearly I worry about my newer penny, but it can cope. How do you fly with it? Oh, yeah, I've been doing not so much lately because teaching term takes over my global racing um, scene, unfortunately. But I used to, I used to travel to Tasmania every February and race down there, which is such a great time because, you know, up to like 90 penny races go along and just to one little town called Evandale and there's just pennies everywhere for like, usually two there's two weekends of racing and then the week in between everyone just hangs out or goes touring because Tasmania is beautiful. But on the first weekend, it's a hundred mile ride across Tassie and then the next weekend is all the racing as well as a 20 mile road race it just it, pennies look normal it's weird there's pennies <laughs> everywhere it's so wow. exciting people with penny t-shirts on and penny things it's yeah you hang I mean, out with the penny to people hold this this just yeah. sounds like
3: experience
2: yeah I think you should go
1: yeah go, go you, be
2: one of the penny people do you do the maintenance on it do you have to true the wheel like how yeah I should bring it's it along massive, shouldn't I to it? LBK
1: Let's I do a penny farthing wheel building workshop. Yeah, yeah. Well, I get some help. I can, I can clearly. Um, I've done a bit of truing, but you've got to be quite, you know, focused because you can, you don't want to knock a wheel like that too far out. And uh, I've got spare spokes for when something happens, and it can cope with a few spokes gone. Wow. So I have them made, and there's lots of lots of people when you're in when you get into your niche, right? Suddenly, it becomes <laughs> a big world. Huh. And I'm in a few niches now. <laughs> yeah, I think your niche is niche. Yes. <laughs> digging, <laughs> digging. But but the old penny is so heavy; it's remarkable. I've got them both up on the wall, which makes me very happy. But I've got to like take some deep breaths in order to get one of them down because it is like solid. But it's radial spokes, ah, oh, and it's um, painted like a deep maroon with gold detailing on it. It is super. You send us Beautiful. a picture. I can
3: put a link below, yeah. so then people can see mm,
1: mm, your beauty. Mm. What's
3: it like to ride? Because it's fixed, mm, right? Mm. And what's the brake system? Oh, like? Just just slow your legs down. Are you, stra- <laughs> are you
1: strapped in? Is it like toe clips, or well, toe straps, or Are you different- clipped in? Well, like- Australian racing didn't let you clip in, so I started racing there. So I would just wear a pair of Converse that would this you know sink quite well into some rat traps, basically. And then I did try clipping in, but. Um, I haven't found, I think I like to move position on the saddle depending on, you've probably seen racing, everyone either leans right forward or they pull right back, you know, in order to, you've got to use your hands quite a lot, obviously to brake and accelerate. And I was moving around on the saddle quite a lot and I didn't really have a comfortable position when I was clipped in. But lots of people do that, but I tend to not clip in. That's just how I feel. And then the original one, I don't either because it's a little bit more casual riding. But they're great. You should have a go. I
3: need to try it. So I've been on a tall bike and I just cried the entire time. So <laughs> it was too high. I just it freaked me out. I didn't know how to get off. So then I just kept cycling around in a circle because yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. Like, no!
1: <laughs> that sounds funny and mean. Yeah, <laughs>
3: I did it myself. It was, you know, I chose to do it, and it was, yeah, just like egging yourself up to get off because you do that kind of knock it to the side and kind Mm, of come down. yeah, yeah.
1: But with a penning, don't you kind of clamber onto the back? Exactly. It's more like a scooter. So that's one thing you've got to get into your brain that you don't get off on the sides. Mm. Or actually, to be honest, you you probably do it once and then it never happens again because you're like, I can't do that again because your legs go, your foot goes into the spokes and then your head goes down first. (laughs) So I did that and ended up in a bush, which was useful. And then I thought, I will not do that again. (laughs)
3: You slide off, don't you? Yeah, you well, you kind of you make slide a crack. Yeah, and you just, yeah. you just superman, superman off the front. Off. Yeah,
1: <laughs> superwoman. Yeah.
3: So, so. Exactly. Superperson. exactly. Superperson. Superperson off the front yeah, yeah. of a penny farthing.
1: Yeah, well, you wow. try not to because that's a classic penny header or Oof. what's called the imperial crowner because um, if you, you imagine that big wheel and the little wheel and that spine that connects them um, – if something stops that big wheel, then the back just pivots over the front over. and your legs are underneath your handlebars, so you just you just break oh. with your face.
3: Oh.
1: I've seen that happen a few times in races. I bet
3: you have. Whoa.
1: Catastrophic failures, and they're not nice, not nice. So I think that's when you are racing, it makes your stomach go a bit funny because you're like, oh. I might die. Yeah. Well, that thing of, you know, so often I'm sure you two do it as well, where you think, oh, what could possibly go wrong? But when you're about to race, you're like, oh, quite a lot.
3: Your brain's like, I've just like gets a scroll that slowly rolls out and it's like, I've made a list. (laughs) That's right. Part one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And all the things that I kind of do for a living, you know, kind of need my hands to type and. My face is useful.
3: Uh, but only in near death do we feel life. <laughs> ah, yes. We keep rec- really, coming Really? I love theme. it. A theme
1: just constantly. Keep coming back to this theme. That's ride really, a, you a penny. <laughs> Yeah.
3: I'll give it a go. I want to try it, but again, I think I might cry the entire time. But that's also fine. You know, I'm yeah, not yeah, comfortable with the tears. <laughs> yeah.
2: I want to know where you get the tyres from. What are they? Are they
1: pneumatic? No, solid. Imagine now I ride through glass with impunity. They're solid tyres. Yeah. Course.
3: They're going to be like a good apocalypse bike, aren't they, really?
1: Oh, I imagine.
2: <laughs> I love that. With a like spike on the front.
1: Yeah. And they're on the making back.
2: like penny farthing mountain bikes, like fat tyres. Ah, oh, see, there you
1: go. I'd be super into that. Yeah. That would be weird.
2: It would be, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, be yeah Yeah. Except for the potential for that penny on. Oh, hey yeah. <laughs> Hardcore. Okay, never
2: mind. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Not a good idea.
3: I wonder if you could just do, I feel like all the different women in the book. Could you just do a quick, maybe just who they are? Because yeah. I know you talked about one of them, the outfit yeah. that Jenny wore. Yeah. But if you could give us maybe just a little, like, tiny blurb about each one. But then obviously we just want to encourage people to buy the book
1: mm. and then where they can get it. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, there are six women that I focus on in the book, but I also I point to... Others as well, because they weren't the only ones. I've just chosen those six to focus on. But the six women were Alice Louisa Bygrave, um, and she was a dressmaker from Brixton, but lived also in um, Kings Road in Chelsea, where her parents had a watch and clock making shop. And she was the one who uh, also had a, a. It's so interesting. I I keep seeing Chapter Six as a film. A film, I say. Found so much about her, and I thought she was amazing. She. Um, her brother was, and sister-in-law were professional racing cyclists and her sister in law's another great story, Rosina Lane. And the front of the book is actually Rosina Lane in Alice Bygrave's convertible costume. So not only was it made, it looks like it's made for her, You know, maybe early form of cycling um, sponsorship, and she got photographed a lot in it and, and that's before it was got picked up by Jaeger and distributed all over the UK and sold in Australia and made it to the US. So there's a lot about her. Um, and that was the one with the pulley systems in the front and the back. Um, there's Madame Julia Gill, and that Alice Bygrave was um, patented her garment in 1895, and then there's Madame Julia Gill, who's a court dressmaker from Haverstock Hill. And she um, patented again in 1895, and um, that is a skirt which looks a little bit like an 80s bubble skirt. You know, very simple A-line that then it conceals these um, cords and rings underneath the flounce at the bottom of the skirt that comes up to the waist, ties, and then creates a double peplum with the jacket. So... Have a look at the website. You'll understand what I mean. I wasn't using words like peplum before this either, but it makes complete now, sense. Now, yeah, once you know what yeah, that is. Yeah. Well, she was writing about this. Make sure the peplum matches the... And I was just like, what is she? And then you make it and you're like, oh, look at that matching double peplum. Look at that the peplum's peplum. the little frill in the back, yeah? It's the... Um, the bottom yeah. of a jacket. Yes, but also it can come round as well. So it is the bottom of the jacket. Um, but the bottom of the skirt, she insisted that it should be underneath flounce, should be the same material as the jacket. So when it comes up, creates this matching peplum. Mm. There's also the Peace Sisters, and they are the um, youngest inventors from York, gentlewomen from York, and they designed a skirt that was also a cape that you radically take off completely and either wrap it around your neck and the waistband becomes this high ruched neckline. It's quite nice. Or else they talked about using the straps to roll it all up and tie it to your handlebars. So remove it completely, and then you're just left with your bloomers, a blouse and maybe a waistcoat. So there's one more. There's Henrietta Muller, which is the one that Jenny was wearing. And she was a a women's rights activist from Maidenhead. And she designed, in 1896, her improvements in ladies' garments for cycling and other purposes was the three-part one with the jacket all in one uh, bloomer onesie and the uh, convertible skirt.
2: The onesie is very much like a skin suit.
1: Yes. Of construction.
2: Tweed. Yeah.
1: Skin yes. suit.
2: Tweed skin suit.
3: Yeah. Yes.
1: yes. 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 Everyone should have one of those.
3: I want to make it out of carbon fibre. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to see. Yeah. And so in the book, you've got the stories of the cyclists. You've got information on the patents, but they're also on your website. And then you also do like an overview of the history at the time, mm. don't you?
1: Yeah. So, I kind of contextualise it to kind of um, explain a little bit about what motivated these women to do this, but also, you know, the challenges that they faced and the fact that they were incredibly enthusiastic cyclists at the time. You know, women very rarely get, tend to get narrated as being, you know, early adopters of new technologies and they were so eager. You know, once you've experienced the unparalleled, you know, freedom, independence of a bicycle, there was probably no going back. So, you know, they were certainly wanting to do it as much as possible. So they found ways around some of these restrictions to get on their bicycles and enjoy themselves. And I think what the, I think what the research does is that it um, shows women as being, you know, um, not just passive participants you know, not just watching amazing things going on, but of, as being engineers and as designers and inventors, you know, directly um, changing and challenging, you know, the status quo, driving social change. You know, so often they're seen, especially in histories of technologies and histories of cycling, they're seen as, you know, passive participants, but as um, symbols of social change, not as catalysts of it. And I think this is just one. Small example of, I'm sure, a lot more aware women, not that they're doing so much more. And it's quite inspiring. It's too
3: inspiring. (laughs) It's like,
1: oh, I'm moved.
3: Oh my gosh. We're not statues. Go out and ride your bike. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And if there's something that you want to do, just do it. Just
3: do it. So, where can we get your book?
1: It is published by Goldsmiths Press, but distributed by MIT Press, which means that it should be everywhere. So yeah, all the bookshops go to their locals, you know, Back they should from your have local it. Shop. Exactly. Or from, you know, kind of your bigger kind of high street shop. It should be around.
2: And exactly. where can we follow you on the on the social medias?
1: Yeah, well my website has a lot of information, particularly if you're interested in where this came about and what I've been doing for four years on the project. That's bikesandbloomers.com. And they on Twitter with the hashtag of Bikes and Bloomers. You can also see, you know, um, many of our successes, but also many of our challenges and tangents and mess and um, sewing injuries that we've had along the way in making all these garments. And you'll see lots of people in the garments, which has been actually one of the incredible gifts, I think, of the project. Inviting people literally into the research, you know, into costumes has been kind of awesome for me. And I learn all the time from different insights that people have. Because the intimacy of wearing the clothes of others, I think, changes some conversations.
3: Yeah, like to actually get into their clothes is kind of, yeah, getting into their mind.
1: Mm. Yeah, you feel how they both enable but also constrain and makes you think more broadly not only about these material restrictions but also about the social and the political and the cultural and the fact that this is not just located 130 years ago. You know, this may not be our our personal lives here, but it still is, you know, happening to other women in different places.
2: Who knows what else we'll find. Amazing, Awesome. Thank you, Kat. Thank Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you.
3: Yeah, that was really good. Thank you. If you like what we do, squish that like Like. button, rate Rate. us on iTunes and subscribe. Subscribe. If you can't give us your money, give give us us your your stars. stars. And don't forget to slam that Share. share button and tell all your podcast listening and perhaps also cycling friends about our show. Until next time.
2: Bye. Bye.